had to get on a plane on the down low and fly to Los Angeles to meet with him. And that was just crazy. I heard you had to, you were brushing your teeth in the car. I was. I heard. <laughs> Changing my clothes, brushing my teeth on this man's lawn. It was a lot. And the, and the whole time, like the, the driver's like peppering me with questions because he has the clue that he's taking me to someone's house who's really, really famous, but I can't say, I'm going to Will Smith's house, dude. Hello, and welcome to The Awardist from Entertainment Weekly, taking you inside this year's top contenders for the Oscars and more of the industry's biggest awards. I'm Clarissa Cruz, EW's executive editor. I'm joined by my co-host, Josh Rothkopf, EW's senior movies editor. Hi, Josh. Hey. Today, we have a special guest with us, EW critic Leah Greenblatt. Hi, Leah. Hello. Hello. On today's episode, we'll be bringing you interviews with Will Smith and Anjanu Ellis. Both of them do really excellent work in King Richard. That film about Richard Williams' almost insane passion and drive to turn his daughters, Venus and Serena, into tennis champions is very satisfying as a sports movie, an inspirational movie. But the performances, especially from Smith and Ellis as Richard's wife, Orsine, elevate it to something more complex. It's a portrait of a marriage with a shared vision, but also a bit of friction. Well, who would it be a marriage if it, there wasn't a bit of friction? I don't think. <laughs> so you say. <laughs> but before we get to those interviews and discussion of the best actor race, let's chat a little bit about the SAG Awards and take the temperature of the race right now. I mean, there are a lot of surprises, I thought. Leah, what was your biggest takeaway watching the SAG Awards? Um, that shows need hosts, award shows, definitely. Mm-hmm. That was a takeaway. But I think there was actually a lot of great surprises. I I actually, I have to confess, I'm not a watcher of Squid Game, but it did feel really good to see that whole crew win. And I think that, you know, a lot of the voting bodies are very aware right now that they have to make up for some of the wrongs that have been done. To I mean, we've nominated a lot of Asian movies for Oscars without ever rewarding the actors, which is pretty mm-hmm. gross. You know, we did that with Parasite, Crouching Tiger. I feel like Yoon Jun winning from Minari was kind of an outlier. But for me, the biggest surprise was probably Chastain. And that category mm-hmm. was so up in the air. Nobody knew. Yeah. I don't know if anyone was more surprised than Jessica herself. <laughs> she <Yep>. totally <laughs> looked surprised. But in yeah, that way. was a shocker. And it feels like it upended the race or just really tilted it towards her, which was really interesting. So that was like the bellwether kind of award for me. Do you think that Jessica Chastain is now the front runner in that race? It's so chaotic. There's been so it's traded chaotic. between so many people over time. So is could we point to her as saying she has the heat now? Or I'm gonna go with the Leonardo DiCaprio theory that it is her time to win. <laughs> because to me, Tammy Faye is kind of a TV movie. I didn't love it, though I I had a lot of affection for it. It was kind of the little movie that could, and I thought there was definitely, you know, merit to it, but it was a little janky, honestly. But her performance is fantastic, especially considering she'd been trying to make that movie for 10 years and had in some senses sort of aged out of it, but like through sheer determination and prosthetics. Prosthetics. Convinced me completely <laughs> yeah. that she was a teenager up and up through, you know, whatever it was. But yeah, I do feel like she's given, how many, is she three or four nominations in? now hurt locker the yeah, house, hurt I locker. Say. yeah and she's phenomenal in most things i mean i would have given her something for molly's game so zero dark 30 too is she was yes. phenomenal and 
And I, I like the idea of he or she is due. That definitely is sound Oscar reasoning, right? There's always that point. <laughs> I mean, I like that better. As much as I would love Penelope Cruz to win that race, I uh, I don't know. I don't really think that just because there are more international voters in Amphis, that they are all going to collect behind Penelope Cruz. As much as I love uh, that fantasy, because I I, yeah. I think that international voters like don't look up you know i think they like big stars <laughs> i think they like dumb movies too just like we do I, and i don't yeah. it would be like basically like saying oh everyone from italy is obviously going to vote for house of gucci which is not the case you know or the hand of god and you know. god is one of the nominees for yeah, best it, is, it did make the cut mm-hmm. yes yes yeah yes yeah yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you say that about, uh, well, first of all, it wouldn't be a podcast episode if Josh didn't get his dig in at Don't Look Up. Um, but, but it is, That's right. It is, yes. <laughs> it is interesting um, just to like wrap up the best actress conversation. Like it, it is super chaotic. And I feel like we were kind of in this place last year. Like there, there, it seemed like with every award show, someone became the front runner. I remember when Andre Day, um, you know, and like all, all yes. of, it was just such, it was, it was, and I, and I think it's good because like I, it, I think it just makes it more interesting. Um, the year that uh, everyone thought was going to win from the beginning and all the acting categories, like that was just a really boring year. That was the, the Brad Pitt, Laura Dern, you know, Joaquin Phoenix. Like, I feel like those wins were already kind of locked in. And so every award show just kind of confirmed that. And um, and so I like it when there's a little bit more of a surprise. Um, in Absolutely. I remember, I remember one year, I think it was the year with like Colin Firth and Natalie Portman. And it was just like, you could have checked it off months ahead of time who was going to win. And they all won. And it's like, and yes, David Fincher is going to lose to Tom Hooper. And it was just like this deadening experience watching the Oscars. So I totally love it when there's unpredictability. And I also... You're going to throw I mean, Warren Beatty in there again, aren't you? You're going to make him read the card. <laughs> right, exactly. That would Agent be of Chaos, Josh Rothkopf. I also... Care. Watching the SAGs, I love The Power of the Dog. But I do find it kind of fascinating that that film seems to be cooling in a weird way. I don't know if mm. it's still quite, I think it's still obviously going into the Oscars with 12 nominations, a front runner, but because it has the most nominations, it has the most to lose. And so it lost Cody Smith McPhee to Troy Kotzer. He has he's cooled. Been, he has right, cooled. cooled. I would say yeah. we can yeah. say definitively that Troy, this is Troy's absolutely to lose at this point. I don't know that Cody Smith McPhee has the seasoning maybe that voters mm. want. Clearly, Hollywood loves an ingenue, but I think the acting awards now really do feel like I I wonder Kirsten Dunst is another person who also feels due. Don't, wouldn't mm-hmm. you agree mm-hmm. that, that if she were to win, this would be a lifetime achievement award de facto, basically. Yeah. Um, and I would not be mad at that at all. Again, I would give it to her alone for probably drop dead gorgeous. So, you know, yeah. Um, Bachelorette, Bachelorette, just Bachelorette, so many <laughs> melancholia. There's a million things I would, so I would love to be rewarded for. Marianne yeah. I mean, she oh. definitely feels due. And I feel, though, that the combination of Kirsten losing, Cody losing, and Benedict Cumberbatch losing to Will Smith, it really, you know, it's sort of. I don't know, though. Where, I mean, Jane I, did you really expect it. them? Yeah, Jane could still take it. I don't know about the, the acting. I, I think Cody was the one that's, that felt more like a loss. Right. Like, Kirsten and, and Benedict, like, you know, there are other front runners in those races. So that wasn't a huge surprise to me um, when they didn't get it. And I don't think it actually signals that the film as a whole isn't going to do well on Oscar night. I do think Jane has a great shot and and Best Picture. I think they have, they have a great shot, too. But, Though, but yeah, Cody was the, the cooling one, I thought. 
Do you guys think that there is still a contingent of the voting body that will not give the award to Netflix? That is my question for Best Picture. I think there's a lot of people that have are invested in not giving it to a streamer yet. And I think someone's Mm going to have to break that barrier eventually. Mm-hmm. I just know that there are some pretty stalwart people on the Academy who are just like never Netflix. And in yeah. addition to that, not only are there the never Netflix people, they did not expect Coda to be surging. So the irony of <laughs> that they are this close to never a Apple Plus. win. And then never, Apple yeah. Plus is suddenly, you know, might actually steal that thunder from them. And Coda is the kind of movie, I mean, even regardless of what we think of it critically, it definitely pleases crowds. It's the kind of movie that I yeah. think Oscar voters, if they commit to watching, will possibly like more than The Power of the Dog because it's a lot more conventional mm. and it's more inspiring. Charming. It's charming, you know. So I, I'm sure that Netflix is hating the Coda surge right now. It already got $25 like million the- dollars for it at Sundance. Like, it's a little- <laughs> <laughs> That's what the money is for. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That's an interesting point about the streamer thing, because I remember, I think the last in-person Oscars, or maybe it was a different award, I think whatever one of the events from that last season, I do remember hearing people as they were filing out of the theater saying, yeah, no, like literally no, no Netflix, mm-hmm. you know, like it was, it was the year they, they were everything. nominated for a lot, but they, yeah, but they were nominated for a lot that year and then came home pretty much empty handed. And so mm-hmm. I think that is an issue and things that I think people will be voting around in, in certain yeah. segments. So I think you're I, right. I've been at those film festivals, Sundance or Venice, when the Netflix logo comes up and people are booing, like loudly booing. Yeah, people hissed. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that the sheer power of Netflix's purchasing and acquisitions and taste, really. I mean, when they're releasing movies like Marriage Story and The Power of the Dog, that's good on them. And oh my God, are you kidding? For Lost Daughter, the fact that anyone can just mosey onto Netflix and and watch a movie like Lost Daughter. I know. You guys, my mom, yeah. my mom watched it not knowing what it was about. And she's like, oh. Do you know this movie Lost Daughter? And I, and I was like, Well, obviously, first of all, number one, my mom does not listen to this podcast, otherwise she would know that that I talk about this, this movie every time. But she's like, that was really good. And this is somebody who doesn't, she's never up on, on these things. And she found Lost Daughter on Netflix, watched it, thoroughly enjoyed it. I had to explain the doll to her though. Still, but um, we could but, do yeah. a whole I think we could do a whole podcast episode on just our parents and their reactions so <laughs> just last week my parents were like oh we saw the most fabulous movie it was called belfast have you ever heard of it and it's like it's such a, it's such a my nemesis belfast <laughs> right, exactly. yeah. they don't listen to your podcast either josh <laughs> they don't listen to it thing. so let's actually let's shift over to another oscar topic that I think everyone was talking about last week, and it's still kind of an issue. This new idea that that Ampus is doing, where they're taking eight categories and moving them to the pre-show. The eight categories that they're presenting in the first hour, actually before a lot of people are even seated, are best documentary short subject, best film editing, best makeup and hairstyling, best original score, best production design, and then the short film awards, short film animated and short film live action, and also best sound. So it's eight of them. I'm curious about what you think about this, moving these categories to the pre-show and why are real hardcore Oscar obsessives very upset about this? Okay, so I I don't know if you can put this in post-production, but I would like to proceed this with a sad trombone sound because I think (laughs) every single part of this decision is so wrong-headed. We don't live in a world where the Oscars get the ratings that they used to. That world is gone. 
So the fact that ABC is doing all these crazy convolutions to try to, to try to appeal to this imaginary audience that will somehow tune in if the ceremony is 20 minutes shorter is so absurd on the face of it to me. And like this show is for people who love movies and it's, it's messy and it's long. I want every in memoriam tribute. I want every super montage. What I don't want is a lot of dumb patter and I don't need every best song. Like nobody Mm. does. Unless it's those years where you really have an amazing slate, but. Or an interpretive dance of the best song. There's always, there's always fat that you can trim, but this isn't fat. This is muscle. This is the meat Mm -hmm. of the Oscars. And to me, it's so insulting to these people, these backline people who already work so hard to shape these movies with, with, with so little of the glory that, of course, you know, the actors and everyone gets, but literally risked their lives in the last two years to make these movies, to go on set pre-vaccine and make most of these. And and that might sound a little like righteous, but I just think all of it is so No, you and Guillermo Del Toro made the same point. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. And yeah. he has much more of a place to make it from. And I think it just feels so stupid because the end result is such a small, you know, saving of things. And they took away things that tend to be superstar and more popular categories anyway. And I think we've shown time and time again, that it depends much more on the host and just sort of how the show is going. People will stay past the first hour if they're having a good time. And if it's a well done show. And of course, so like you said, if it's not the whole thing on rails, because we've been watching these same people win for months. Right. You know, when there's the element of surprise kind of promised to you, you're going to tune in. Right. Right. And right. and this is just an element of kind of ick to me. It seems to be cannibalizing itself in search of something it will never find. And I just think that's a huge bummer. It is an imaginary audience member who's like, oh, yeah, the award show is 20 minutes shorter. Now I you got rid of in. best sound. Yeah, yeah, I'm right. in. I'm right. Exactly. It's, it's so nuts. And yeah. the irony, of course, of that editors are going to be editing down these montages. During, <laughs> Good luck but, with they're, that. <laughs> but they're not but they are not going to be honored in full clearly you know it's a real alanis morissette irony right yeah yeah exactly yeah Yeah, exactly i don't know i mean and i yeah just like just the so the whole like the circumstance of it you know like these people are nominated for oscars and they're going to be accepting it like anyone who's been to an award show knows that no one is seated until everyone is like you know there's all that time and that people are on the carpet even though i think the academy said they were going to stagger arrivals so that the auditorium isn't empty when um during the first hour when they're going to be accepting and presenting the awards for these categories and i i just said like it it just seems a bit sad to me that they won't get their due because you know that the a-listers are still going to be on the carpet during that pivotal hour they get into while they're winning yeah right Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. Right, have, right I, before show starts is when they're all seated. So it's just um, unless it, there's going to be a huge change. Unless yeah. there's a huge change, and there's going to be, um, I think, a lot of uh, there's going to be distraction in terms of the speeches shouting out to these people, you know. So it's oh. going to be like a big asterisk throughout. I do have a hot take about this subject that I <laughs> that I that I don't know if you two will agree with, but I actually think that the media is partly the blame for this <gasps> shift. How dare you? <laughs> because yes, every single time that we call these categories craft categories 
or artisans instead of artists, like a production designer is like a cobbler smurf or something. Every single time we create this two-tier system, we make it more detachable. And it actually takes away from the real craft and technique that goes into directing and acting and writing. So I'm just not cool with that terminology to begin with. So everyone's like, oh, the craft categories, we miss the craft categories or the below the line categories. I've never been a fan of those terms. But again, this might be my own hill to die on. I don't like, I've known too many cinematographers and too many editors actually call them artisans or craftspeople. I, I just, I hate Yeah, they're terminology. not Daniel Day-Lewis yeah. making a shoe. Exactly. No, they're not. And, and, and when you talk about production design, editing. You said cobbler, so I had to say that. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, it's, a <laughs> it's the bedrock of filmmaking. That's what makes filmmaking filmmaking is editing. The fact that we can, we're not going to see that, that some yeah. young editor wannabe on the audience isn't going to see that or see Hans Zimmer winning for Dune or something. It's just, it's crazy to me. It's counterintuitive. Or I can get mad out. that Bohemian Rhapsody yeah. won for editing because that was insane. <laughs> uh, Josh gets out all his feelings on this in our uh, latest uh, issue of the Awardist, um, which which will be out uh, on March fourth. So uh, check that out. But he does he does make his cobbler smurf reference, which now that's all I envision um, <laughs> when I think of these categories. But you know, language is important. The words that you choose are important. I do agree with that. I'm not sure about how that could change. I mean, there are certain whole uh, publications that that use, uh, you know, there uh, are. Uh, these words as people's jobs. So it's hard, but it's a, it's a good point that you're making yeah. that uh, differentiation between artisans and artists. Um, and uh, I think um, that the, yeah. the whole reason that those publications created those categories, like Variety, I think, with their crafts stuff, and is because they want to focus on those people and have a section for them. So the intent behind it makes sense. Like we want to include interviews with these people and we want to make sure that they're not lost in the discussion. But I just wish the language were different. I don't know. Why don't we shift over to the best actor race since we have an interview with Will Smith coming up. But we we have five best actors in the race. Obviously, Javier Bardem, Benedict Cumberbatch, Andrew Garfield for Tick Tick Boom, Will Smith and Denzel Washington for The Tragedy of Macbeth. I mean, do we have a favorite here? Do we have personal picks for front runners? Clarissa, you go. <laughs> Everyone knows who the front runner is. It's Will Smith, and um, and yeah. the, I think this is a this is a prime example since we've already mentioned this phrase a few times of um, someone getting their due. You know, he's been he's been nominated three or four, three or yeah. Um, One thing I want to say about King Richard, just as someone who like I saw this at Telluride, and I thought it was basically going to be the Blind Side. The trailer is so misleading about his role in it. It gives mm-hmm. you such a shinier sort of latter version of what's in the movie and I think if you've only seen the trailer and haven't seen King Richard I just really recommend seeing it because I do think it's such a layered and interesting and often unlikable performance which for Will Smith particularly feels very brave because he's been one of our most likable movie stars for 30 plus years or whatever it is now and so I actually am really rooting for him Though I really did not care for being the Ricardos in many ways, but I think Javier was one of the best things about it. And um, Tick, Tick, Boom is also sort of theater kid kryptonite to me. But I thought in that context, Andrew Garfield was fantastic. And Denzel is just always Denzel. It's like there is no point at which you couldn't kind of just give him an Oscar. (laughs) Though to me, the takeaway from Tragedy of Macbeth really is the artisans, the crafts. Oh, I think the, the costume, the costume and the cinematography on that one were absolutely where my head was at. I think it's one yeah, of the most yeah, beautiful same. looking films of of the decade. 
but yeah, I, this just doesn't, yeah, definitely doesn't feel like Denzel's moment, but, and Benedict, I liked very much, but yeah, I want to see Will. Yeah, and I, I think, think and I think yeah. for how charming he was at the SAGs, I mean, that was a lovely and very gracious and, and humble and funny speech. And I definitely didn't hurt. Yeah, that speech hit like all the right notes. The speech has actually become important, right, in terms of oh, potential yeah. voting. And, yeah, and for sure. He was he was he shared the spotlight. And I thought that was exactly what he needed to do there. Then in a Cumberbatch, again, I'm just hot taking it here. I just I. I am not a huge fan of that performance. I I love James Gaffigan, and I love the power of the dog. When I saw this film, I was like, "Wait, there's a mystery here about where this is going." I thought Benedict Cumberbatch was so over the top and so declamatory. It was almost like a Jack Nicholson, late period Jack Nicholson, <laughs> shining or a Pacino like yeah. hoo Right, right. It was for me. And, and it's not to say that um, the film doesn't work because I love the movie overall. But but I I actually. I prefer basically every other major performance in that movie to Benedict. And I was, uh-huh. I mean, and to differ from you a little bit, Leah, I, I am that theater kid who who loved Andrew Garfield's, you know, inner theater geek bursting out of Tick, Tick, Boom. That was a there massive was so surprise to me. There was so much bursting. There was so much bursting. And I thought, I thought that he was terrific in that film. That, I think, would be a personal favor for me this year. But I, I do think, Clarissa, you're 100% right. Will Smith is definitely the front runner. And I, I think he has this in the bag at this point. Watch yeah. out. I do, I do want to say, I actually disliked um, Benedict's performance. I didn't dislike it. I had issues with it for another reason. I think it was such a far reach for him to be cast, you know. And I think he did a very good job with it. But I think he is still... To me, always that sort of very cerebral, very British, very and, you know, and he nailed the accent and and he wore the chaps. I mean, he put an incredible effort into it. But yeah, it was never quite sold because Benedict is just too, he's so, he's so quintessentially Cumberbatchy. Right. He's Cumberbatchy. He's, and he's always playing characters that have that kind of intellectual component. You could believe that his character in Power of the Dog was um, a Yale York. scholar yeah. and like there was all sorts of backstory right and but, but <laughs> the big spoiler that I won't spoil about his character <laughs> was not a spoiler for me like five ten minutes into you know and he's like mocking the oh, list got, of it yeah. I'm like come on I mean this is not a mystery yeah this, this not a long walk yeah. yeah 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 no not at all I mean I saw it super early so I didn't even really hear um the talk around it um and it never was a mystery to me, just like watching that and that, you know, uh, and, um, but yeah, no, I, you know, and, and he actually does say like when we, when we interviewed him for the podcast, um, he, he did, you know, make that point because I think my first question was like, you're known for this. Why'd you do that? <laughs> you're known for <laughs> cerebral characters. And then he's like, well, actually he is very cerebral, you know, in his, in his own way. Um, yeah. yeah. And then no, he it's, apologized it's... because he had to cough. So I'm just like, he's like, so he like the Cumberbatch was in effect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's fascinating, you know, the sort of sliding doors world of what power of the dog would have been without the pandemic because it was supposed to be Elizabeth Moss instead of Kirsten Dunst. It was supposed to be, I think, Paul Dano instead of Jesse Plemons. Like you have these people winning all of these accolades for these roles that they weren't even supposed to be. Jane Campion said she was devastated Elizabeth Moss's scheduling wouldn't allow her to to do it. You know, so we could have had such a different movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In so many ways. And and I mean, that's literally every movie, but it is interesting when you get that insight into the casting. I'm hearing that a lot too about from the directors that there was this incredible benefit that they never normally have with the pandemic. Obviously, 
uh, an accidental one, but the idea of taking a break from the production, rethinking everything, considering different things that they should be exploring, and then coming back to a shoot with reinvigorated energy. That's what Jane Campion told us when Mary interviewed her recently, and that's an, that's an interview that we have live on the site now. Okay, so when we come back, we'll have clips from our interview with Will Smith, who we spoke to for our December Will Smith sat down with our writer, Andrew Lawrence, at our cover shoot. Here are segments from their interview. What was amazing to me, and another part of the excitement of bringing this story to the screen, is what this family did and you know what Richard spearheaded is so spectacular that you couldn't possibly give him credit. It's so big. It's yeah. so, it's like, and I was talking to someone the other day. I was like, no, you guys have to imagine. Imagine that at the height of Michael Jordan going for six championships in Chicago, his brother was the team he was playing against in Los Angeles. Like that's the size and the impossible scope. It's like Tiger Woods is number one and his brother is number two. It's, it's impossible, right? And the size and scope and scale of it is too big for our minds to realize the level of impossibility of being able to do that with a plan. To set out to do that and to say you're going to do that two years before the children are born, right? It's like, it's, it's so spectacular that it was, it was an honor for me to be able to just slow it down a little bit and show people how special his, his mind and his belief and his faith and a, a, a long way from, a, a, from a, a perfect man, but perfect in his belief and his love and his, his passion and his cultivation of his family. Tennis was just the, the training ground. Tennis was used for Venus and Serena and for the family. And they're going to have uh, tennis be the area where they're going to learn the lessons of life. Tennis was, was secondary or tertiary. Here's Will on how Richard Williams may have been ahead of his time and misunderstood in the moment. He was one of the most misunderstood people, you know, uh, during that time. Nobody got it. Nobody got it, you know. He was so far ahead of his time um, in terms of the defense of the emotional landscape, right? It's like he saw it, he understood it. And, um, you know, of course, there's the balance of pushing and protecting. But, you know, he had a savant level comprehension of when those moments were, you know? And it, it's like, you know, so it's, 
as a as an actor, you go into a role and the first thing you look for is the things that are most like you. Right. And as soon as you find those, it's like, you know, you're fighting for your life as an actor because you feel like, oh, my God, I'm about to ruin it all. Venus and Serena are never going to speak to me again. You know, so it's like, you know, all of that. So and then you find a thing that to hang on to that is similar. And then you venture out into the parts that are that are, are different from you. And. You know, he's one of the most emotionally invincible humans you will ever come in contact with right you you can't hurt him you know and he's been hurt so bad you know he's he's been um abused and brutalized by this world so much and he knows it can't break him when we spoke to Will Smith, he was actually seated with Serena and Venus Williams. Here's a clip where he's speaking to them about how meaningful it was playing their father. We hear these stories all the time and you're always looking. The angle in is always the hard part when you're trying to tell uh, a, a life journey. Um, and I guess the in through... Uh, Richard appealed to me because uh, it was the only way I could be involved. <laughs> it's good when people, when you know people like the movie, right? Yeah. You know, uh, you know, I was joking about it, but it was it was a rough day when I knew that you guys were in the theater yeah. watching the film. That is so. I, you know, I had that moment um, with with Ali. I was sitting behind Ali when he watched the movie the first time. And I was like, okay, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> never doing yeah, that, that again. That, I was like, I no, no, they can watch it. it. They can watch it by themselves. But it was, uh, it was such uh, a relief that, that, you know, you guys um, enjoyed it and felt like uh, your, your father and your family were honored, you know, for me taking um, this role um, was to honor the beautiful aspects of your journey and your family. It's like I saw something that was so beautiful and so misunderstood. And I was inspired to be a part of saying, no, 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 y'all got it twisted. I want you to look at this. I want you to really see this. You know, I don't make movies for money anymore. I don't make movies for awards or anything like that. I make movies to honor people yeah. and to talk about um, ideas that I think can be helpful to other humans. So this this movie was a gift to you yeah. and your family. So I am ecstatic that you you appreciate Thanks for stopping by, Will. And now we have your on-screen wife, Anjanu Ellis, who also sat down to talk with us. I am so thrilled to welcome Oscar-nominated um, <laughs> star Anjanu Ellis. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. Thank you. This is quite the journey, and I'm sure these weeks since the nomination announcement have been quite a whirlwind. How has it been for you? A little bit. I mean, 
God, I'm a little speechless because I'm I'm kind of not used to it. You know, I I just I'm kind of not used to it, and and I I'm st- I'm still working on other things. I have things other things going on in my life, but then I'm on the phone in the middle of the day talking to you, you know, about it. So it's strange. It's strange. Can I say that? Just to be honest, it's very strange. <laughs> No, I I, I very much appreciate the honesty. Um, And I'm very honest when I say that I truly enjoyed your performance in this movie. And I thought that your character and the role that you played was the backbone of the Williams family. And um, I wanted to know sort of how this came about and what your process was like in order to fully portray this character. Well, um, I had heard about it. And I think that they were going through their, you know, due diligence of of finding the person to play the role. Um, I wasn't the first choice, and that's all right. It's okay. I had to fight for it, but I'm used to fighting, so it's all right. And I auditioned, taped, did the whole thing. My sister did a couple of tapes with me. Um, and then that led to um, convincing them a little bit, but I had to go a couple steps further, met with Ray on the phone, had a good conversation with him. That led to another meeting with Will in California. So while I was doing Lovecraft Country, I had to get on a plane on the down low and fly to Los Angeles to meet with him. And that was just crazy. I heard you had to, you were brushing your teeth in the car. I was. I heard. <laughs> Changing my clothes, brushing my teeth on this man's lawn. It was a lot. And the, and the whole time, like the, the driver's like peppering me with questions because he has the clue that he's taking me to someone's house who's really, really famous. But I can't say I'm going to Will Smith's house, dude. You know, <laughs> so I'm trying to be all cool about that. Anyway, it worked out um, and I got the job. And then. Um, the next part of it, which is the hardest part, is the joy of getting the job and then you actually have to do it. So it, it that became me sort of sh- being feeling shame because I did not know I did not know the truth of Miss Orsine Price. You know, um, I did not know that she was their coach. I read that she was she described herself as their coach. And I, I had such a cynical response to that. And felt that that was such an overreach of her self-estimation. Do you know what I mean? And the shame I felt when I found out, I'm getting teary-eyed just thinking about it, um, when I found out that she was as much their coach as as he was, as Mr. Richard was. You know, he was a visionary. He had the idea, but she was the person who was executing it. And so they did these epic recordings of Miss Oracine. And I would just listen to them every day, um, and they became my oral Bible. I would, they would be in my ear all the time. And so that's pretty much what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've read um, some of your interviews as you've been on, on this trail, and um, one of the things that sort of stayed with me was that you talked about having to be an advocate for this character and sort of an advocate on, on, on the set fighting for your character. What do you mean by that? I felt like I was fighting for Miss Oracine. You know, I I felt that what I do want to say is that a lot of times when these stories are told, these historic male figures, you know, these stories, particularly heroic male figures, and we see them all the time, particularly in biopics, right? And the role that women play often in them is, is merely to move the narrative that centers around the dude, you know? 
And I'm exhausted with that. Um, and thankfully I was working with some, you know, some really good hearted and solid men who weren't threatened by, uh, telling the truth of Miss Orsi and wanted to tell her truth fully. Um, and in order to do that, they had to give her space in that story, in that storytelling. So I just wanted us to go as far as we could with that. And as much real estate that, that I was that was given, I wanted to put up all my land, you know, in that. And and really it was, you know, I saw in Miss Orsine what I see in my sister, what I saw in my grandmother, what I see in my mother, so many women in our lives, that they literally keep the world going. Literally keep the world going. And yet at the end of the day, when they go to bed at night, there's no one there saying, Great. Thank you so much for doing this for us. And it should be. My sister deserves an applause at the end of her day, every day for what she does. And so Miss Orsine is that. But, at, you know, she was that. And she was raising tennis champions. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, teaching yeah. herself how to play uh, tennis so she could teach her girls, particularly Serena. She was their seamstress. She made their tennis uniforms. She was working additional jobs when Mr. Richard was, was, you know, not working. This woman was doing all of this in service of just being a mother, but then also grooming, you know, Venus and Serena Williams. And so I felt it was my job to correct what I felt was an injustice that people don't know who she is like myself, you know, and I consider myself as someone, I, I, I'm a womanist. I'm always, you know, mm-hmm. trying to champion the voice of the woman, the experience of a woman that's been left in the margins. And even I failed in that. So I just felt it was my personal responsibility to try to speak for Miss Orsine as best as I could, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, you more than did that. And, you know, all of the acclaims is much, much deserved. I am thinking, and I'm sure everyone um, brings this, a lot of people bring this up when they talk to you is I'm thinking specifically of that kitchen scene with Will when Orisine and Richard have that standoff, which as far as I'm concerned, you won. Um, but, um, but tell me what that was like. Um, you compared it to Ali versus Frazier, and it certainly felt like they were in there, there was a battle going on there. But tell me what it was like shooting that scene and, and what your interaction with Will, you sort of before and during, was, was like. We had been talking about this, that scene since we, we shot that probably in November, but we had been talking about that scene since January. We started rehearsals in January. And then we, you know, we shut down like everybody shut down, but we, we thankfully did not shoot that before we shut down. Um, because it would, it just, it wasn't quite there yet. All of us wanted to work on it more. We all, we had a great script in what Zach Balin wrote, you know, it was already excellent, but we just felt that we could do more with it and go further with it. And for me, I just wanted to say all of the things I felt Miss Orsine would have said in that moment. And I and and honestly, I'll be honest and say this. I wasn't just talking to yes, I was the character of Orsine talking to Richard in that scene. I was Miss Orsine. I was who I imagined Miss Orsine being and saying and saying it to the world. And so I don't apologize about that. 
And I worked with Zach and Will even the night before. We were in the back of a house that we were shooting in all day. Everybody was going going home, but we were still trying to get those words right. That morning, I was I talked to Isha Price, uh, Venus and Serena's sister. She was helping me, telling me things, you know. And um, we tried to put all of that in that scene because I just felt like there are going to be so many more stories told about Venus and Serena because they're they're they are these Chekhovian Shakespearean characters. There's, they have that that August Wilson characters that like that where we return to all the time to to find out things about ourselves, and so we look to a character a character of Venus and Serena to do that. So people are going to be mining their story for eternity, well after you and I are gone. But how often do we have the chance to speak for their mother and also speak for her while she's alive? So, yeah, that's what was in me. <laughs> that's what was that was what, what was churning in me that day. And, you know, Will was Will was Richard Williams. You know, he he was that. And we had never rehearsed the scene. Both of us were trying to get the words right, but we didn't rehearse it. And we did not talk about it, did not talk about it. And I didn't even realize that until, you know, having these discussions. Now I do. But I think we both just were feeling our own sort of hurts and just were able to, I think, honestly, just express that in a very raw way, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It, it felt like a like a real fight, you know, um, and, and I and I and, you know, I was I was sitting there. I was like, oh, man, this is this is this is devastating. Um, but, you know, it's not all about the fights. What I really appreciate about the movie is that oh, you all felt like a family. I know you're portraying a family. And I know you're actors and, and, and you know, that, that's that's the job. But also, I felt like that familial energy permeating through the movie. And then once I did some research, you know, after the fact, you know, some of your co-stars have said that, you know, that feeling actually continued, not just when you were shooting, um, you know, you all celebrated birthdays and had dinners and things. Um, can you tell me, um, like, did Will uh, sort of drive the ship on that? Or where did that come from? Because I know that's not usual. Yeah, well, these young women, they loved each other. So, and the, and the evidence of that is that uh, some of the footage that you see in the film was Ray shooting them when they weren't aware that they were on camera. He was just capturing what was in front of him, completely unscripted. So they, those young women love each other and still love each other. Um, it was a really beautiful thing to see. You know, they could, I was like, you should you should get that, Ray. But they were doing TikTok videos, you know what I mean? So it wouldn't, it's not of the time. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's just that's just who they were, but I will say, you know, no, there's not that not enough can be said about Will and I've heard him say that he felt like he was their father. He was their, you know, film father, but he felt like he was their father in their presence and that's how I felt. I felt like I was their mother when I was around them and I and I meant that and I actually did feel that way. But he also created an environment on that set that was so loving and so generous and so open-hearted and not allowing any kind of, I don't know, he wouldn't allow people to be treated bad in his presence. That happen a lot in, in filmmaking. People think that they're doing brain surgery and they're not. And he, he never, he always wanted it to make it a joyful experience for everybody and particularly these girls. 
Yeah. And uh, and I think that kind of from the top down attitude is what helps foster that environment. You mentioned in the past his sort of generosity as an actor. And you, you talked about, you know, not, not just about the kitchen scene, but how did that play out? I mean, how did that work, I guess, in sort of the mechanics of, of how you work together? I think some of the best actors, the best actors, period, are generous people, you know, and, and, and they come into an experience with you where they're, they're open to having a human experience with you, you know, because you got a big old freaking camera in your face. <laughs> like there is, you know, it is a voyeur, voyeuristic experience. You know, you trying to have something real, but then you got this big old thing in your face that tells you every minute that, yo, what you're doing is fake. But when you, and I have never gotten used to that. I am 53 years old and have been doing this a long time and I have yet to get used to that. But what helps that is, is having someone who has a generous spirit on and off camera. That, that's not always the case. You know, everybody's not that way. That's a gift when it is that way. And so when it's that way, you feel free. You feel free to take risks. You feel free to, to create something with this person. You feel free to fail with them, knowing that it's okay and you, you're, you're trying to figure it out together. And that made, you know, Will Smith an incredible producer and also a, a fantastic scene partner. Yeah. yeah. Your scenes together were electric. I wanted to ask about horror scene because I understand before you started filming, you had one phone conversation with her. I know you've uh, have since had contact with her and, you know, and, and have seen her response to the movie. Um, I mean, was there a reason why there was a little bit less contact in the beginning and then more so after the fact? Did you want to sort of keep that process a little bit uncluttered? Well, we were trying to get her to come to California, but the, the lockdown happened, you know, and she, she just wasn't able to come. But I don't think it was that important to her. Do you know? I think she, she, like I said, they did these recordings of her. They interviewed her for hours and hours and she spoke her truth. And the great thing about that is I don't, I didn't learn anything about her secondhand. I learned, I didn't learn one thing about her secondhand. Everything that I used I learned from her own mouth. That was a treasure. And so, yeah, that's why I didn't, that's why we, we didn't get to do that. But I don't know if that necessarily would have affected anything or, you know, it certainly wasn't important to her. And then I already had her words, her testimony, and I could, I could pull from that. I've had the other experience of having the person on set. <laughs> <laughs> you know, while I'm, it's nerve wracking yes, while I'm playing them or playing their mother, you know what I mean? And, and sometimes it can be distracting, you know, because you feel like you're performing for them rather than playing them or playing their parent. Do you, does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I can, I'm not, I, I don't act, but I can imagine that would just be nerve wracking and, and, uh, intimidating. Yes. Yes, you you end up performing for them. Like, am I playing your mama right? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask one more thing because obviously you have an amazing performance in this movie, Oscar nominated. So much love for this performance. Who are you liking in this awards season? Is there any particular film or other performance that you're a fan of? Oh my God, that's a good question. You know, I'm a, you know, whether I was, whether I would be in this or not, because I certainly didn't have the expectation that I would be. I, this is my season. I love watching these kind of 
I'm a geek like that. You know, my se- my movie watching season starts officially in September because that's when these kinds of movies kind of roll out. But yeah, you know, I I, I love. Penelope Cruz in, in, in Parallel Mothers. I love Jessica Chastain in The Eyes of Tammy Faye Baker. I just feel like Jessica Chastain is just this fearless actor. And I just, I, it's just a great thing to behold. And this these women, this woman wasn't nominated, but I just love Ruth Negga in passing. Beautiful, beautiful performance. Don't get me started. I could go on and on. <laughs> what was it about Penelope's performance that you liked? Well, you know, I, I just think that I think he, Pedro, um, he just he just allows women to exist on screen unfettered, you know? And when you see his films, because we're not used to seeing that kind women take that kind of space, especially in American cinema, it feels so strange. It feels so weird, but really we're just watching a woman in this really sort of domestic situation. She gets pregnant by a dude. It doesn't work out. Her and other women get pregnant at the same time, but we just watch this play out. And then it has that overarching thing of the, the, the burying the dead or the people who were, you know, victims of that, of that war. It, it's just, it's so for me, pleasant and, and affirming and to, to watch something that's creative, that's really just a reflection of a human experience, you know? So, yeah. Totally agree. Well, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. I loved your performance, goes without saying. Um, good luck with everything. Thank you. And um, thanks for joining us. All right. I appreciate it. Our deepest thanks to Anjanu Ellis for sitting down with us and talking about King Richard. Well, that's all from us today. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Awardist. Please subscribe and listen along every week wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us. Tell us what you think. Share it with your friends. You can also head to EW.com forward slash awardist for complete coverage of this year's Oscar race. And follow me on Twitter at Josh Rothkopf, Clarissa at ClarissaNYC1, and Leah at Leah Bats. This episode of the Awardist podcast is hosted by Clarissa Cruz and Josh Rothkoff, produced by Chanel Johnson and Sammy Junio, edited and mixed by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening.